we've developed what we call our relational intelligence test. So I can tell you, Emmy, once you take the test, where you stand on each of the five skills. And then you have to go through and do some training. We call it our relational intelligence experience, but learning how to build empathy, you have to practice it. So it's not just one thing to learn the skills. It's nice to read a book. You have to start practicing the skills and putting them into play. Hey there, and welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Emmy Kirshner. I'm a serial entrepreneur, investor, and business coach for ambitious women who are boldly taking their business to the next level. And I believe that building a successful business isn't about working 24-7 just to merely meet a revenue goal. What it does take is a unique blend of dedication to purpose, courageous action, and frequently sheer will to overcome the odds that lead to meaningful impact and experiencing a life well lived. In each episode, you'll get to know the women and men who are unafraid to put it all on the line as they share the stories of success and failure that have made them incredible leaders and the magic they gift the world with. As you're listening, and I hope finding value, don't forget to share the Tribe of Leaders podcast with all of your other entrepreneurial friends and to follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey, Tribe. Well, this episode is definitely a diverse one. And if that is your game, then you're definitely going to enjoy all of the topics that we talk about here from an incredible shoe collection to bipolar disorder and mental wellness. My guest today is Dr. Adam Bandelli. He is the founder and managing director of Bandelli Associates, and he has 20 years of management, leadership, advisory, consulting experience in the firm's offerings, including senior executive selection, leadership development, organizational culture, and executive education. He is also a second-time author. His book, Relational Intelligence, The Five Essential Skills You Need to Build Life-Changing Relationships, just came out a couple of weeks ago, and we cover a whole range of different topics. A couple of things that I think you're going to absolutely love and have resonate with you are, one, why introverts make incredible leaders. This may surprise you, but more and more research is showing that uh, introverts are absolute powerhouses from leadership to sales and all areas. And not that the extroverts are not fantastic. You are just kind of recognizing some of the differences and appreciating them. He's going to talk about his journey with drug addiction as somebody who um, has bipolar disorder. And one of the words that's really important to him right now is humility and why that is. And then he's also going to talk about his book, Relational Intelligence, why that's more important than emotional intelligence. And I'm going to say the book is incredible. His stories are woven through the entire book. And he really gives you a playbook on how to do life relationships and business far better than we can than we are right now. So let's dive in. Hey, Adam, I am so excited to welcome you to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. And I know nobody else can see us, but I get to see you. <laughs> yes. And I am fascinated by all of the sneakers that you have. Hey. Yeah, yeah. I guess hanging, laying on the wall and then behind. They're on shelves. Yeah. They took me like two weekends to put them up. (laughs) (laughs) 
tell me about that a little bit and then let's dive into who you are and sure. uh, roll our conversation. Yeah. So the shoes are an intimate part of my story of becoming a leadership advisor and management consultant. So I grew up in the 80s with uh, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, um, and I played basketball high school and college. And so like any kid, I wanted to be like Mike. And for me, it went deeper in terms of what qualities make for a great basketball player, a great leader. Mm-hmm. And that led me down the path to studying psychology, getting my graduate degree in organizational psychology, and really doing the work that I do today. I think I've spent my whole career looking at one question, what makes great leaders great? And so the roots of that come from basketball. I am a sneakerhead as well. So those are kind of my uh, you know collection that I have. Okay. And I'm curious, do you rotate what's on the shelves ever or? What's on the shelves are collector items. So it's a version, it's the Jordan 11 that came out in 1994 when he came back from his two or three years of playing baseball. So there's like 50 different versions. I have every single one and it's like a collector's item to have them all. I have the boxes in my closet, so I don't wear any of those. And they've never been worn, right? Like, so they're true. Never been worn. Yep. That's amazing. So that's that's (laughs) a complete investor piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got them insured and everything, yep. Beautiful. So do you still continue to add to the collection? I have. So I'm a sneakerhead. So I collect shoes. I probably have more shoes than you do or some of your women listeners. So I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I add to the list. <laughs> I add to the list often. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite brand of sneaker right now? And then we'll, we'll dive into everything else that's amazing about you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. If we talk business or personal, we just hadn't talked about personal business wise. There's a company called Taft out of the UK. Yeah. And they make really interesting designed dress shoes. And so mm-hmm. I have some dress shoes that look like Burberry shoes and different designs. So that's been an interesting thing that I've been, uh, the addiction of shoes has kind of gone into the Taft world. So I'm giving them a lot of money. I'm sure their stock is going up. Oh, good. Good. Awesome. And let's share with the audience um, who you are and a little bit about your business, because we have so, so much to dive into today and yeah, sure. of your background. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I did my doctoral work down at the University of South Florida in organizational psychology. Um, My dissertation focused on what my next book is going to be coming out called Relational Intelligence. This happened 20 years ago. And then I put the book on the shelf and spent the first decade of my career at a global management consulting firm where I really learned the art and science of being a leadership advisor and consultant, learning things on how to help companies hire and select senior leaders learning how to do executive coaching and training, learning how to do senior team work. So really had a great foundation, had some tremendous mentors, both men and women, straight and gay. So I got exposed to diversity at an early point in my career. Mm -hmm. Started my firm in 2015. And my firm, we focus on really three things that make us unique or differentiate us from our competitors. I think one, we are a firm that builds genuine, authentic relationships with our clients. So everyone is in the nature of business and making money, but we put our clients first before those things. So if you're working with someone from my firm or working with me, you will experience what it is to build a relationship with me. I'm just not providing you with a service. I think the second thing that differentiates us right now, it's important to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. Every company needs to really since social justice 2020. We are a firm that embodies diversity. I have folks on my team who are Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, straight, gay, men, women. So we embody and live diversity, which allows my team to have diversity of thought. So we all come to the table. We feel valued and heard. And I really try to select those type of people to join the firm. And then the third thing we can probably get into today, we are firm advocates for mental health awareness. Mm -hmm. 
myself, my personal journey, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in my early 20s. And the whole situation around what happened, I outright rejected the diagnosis because at 22, 23 years old, how could a doctoral student getting a PhD in psychology have a mental health disorder? That didn't, I couldn't understand that. So I lived in denial for about a decade, which led to a number of different issues with relationships, substance abuse addiction. So for me to now come on the other side of that 15, 20 years later, I think there's a huge stigma around mental health still today. In particular, I think bipolar is the one mental health disorder, more than depression, more than anxiety, where people are more ignorant about it. And so we as a firm really want to speak on what it is, what it isn't. It's okay to be dealing with a mental health challenge. You're not broken. You're not different. You're not weak. And uh, I think that message needs to be communicated. And so that's a special thing for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. What was that like for you receiving that diagnosis and and being like, no, I don't think so. So there are a number of contextual factors. So I was in graduate school where there's high stress to begin with. And I had gone through a three, four month period of a depressive episode. So for someone like me, type A, put something in my mind, I go and accomplish it. Very goal oriented. And for the first time in my life, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't shave my head. I didn't care how I looked. I didn't care what I ate. So all these things that are symptoms that lead to a depressive episode for the first time in my life at 22, I was experiencing them. So it was very scary. Mm-hmm. Then two or three months later, I started to engage in manic behavior. So excessive spending, sleeping two hours a night, almost for three months, I slept two hours a night. And so to go to the other extreme, and then a couple months after that, I fell into another depression that was more severe than the first one, suicidal thoughts. My father was in my life at that point in the time. So he took me to one of his friends who's a psychiatrist. You always hear the bedside manner conversations we talk about with doctors. This physician was rude, abrasive. Mm-hmm. Within five minutes said I had bipolar, gave me a list of medications to take and said, come back in two weeks. And so the way that I was told, you now have a life altering situation, the way it was delivered, the how at my firm, we're big on not just the what you say, it's how you say it. So part of it was how that message was delivered to me. And then again, I think my ego, my pride was you, uh, a psychologist can't have a mental health disorder. That's impossible. And so I think a combination of how I was told and how I viewed myself and my identity were part of two of the big reasons why I rejected the diagnosis as soon as he said it. Yeah, that must have been a lot to take in. And yeah, when, at 23 years old, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm, you know, where I was at at 23, like freshly out of college and really just looking for the next party. Like I worked and... Yeah, yeah just wanted to have fun. So thinking longer term or about my well-being wasn't high on my list at the time. And for me at that point, it was just get a PhD, get a PhD, become a consultant. That is all that, that, that was my identity, become a consultant, move to New York city, make a lot of money. That was it at that point. Yeah. And when this was happening for you, was that really the first time, like any significant issues were coming up or do, or looking back, do you see, either some some of the manic moments or some of the yeah. depressive moments earlier on in your childhood, they just weren't as, so, as significant. That's a, that's a fascinating question. And again, as a psychologist, I've thought about this all the time. Right. Um, if you ask my mother or if you ask people who knew me growing up, at a very early age, they saw leadership-like behaviors, having my friends build a fort, those type of things. 
you would say when I was younger that I was extreme. I was playing basketball. It wasn't just practicing an hour a day with my friends. In the summers, when we head off from school, I would spend seven, eight, nine hours a day out in the 90 degree weather practicing. So with bipolar, there's the extreme highs and lows. So that could have been the origins of it, but they say most people with bipolar aren't diagnosed to their early 20s. So the one thing that I would say is probably throughout my childhood, anything that I did was extreme. There's no, there was no, it was either zero or 100. But that's my personality too. If I commit to something, I'm all in. Right, so right. I think part of that is the bipolar kind of brain wiring. Part of it's my personality too. Okay. And let's talk a little bit more too of what bipolar looks like just for people who don't know or don't have a lot of knowledge. Yeah. In addition to the kind of extreme highs and lows, what else is happening or have you yeah. experienced? Yeah. yeah. So right off the bat, there are different types of bipolar. There's bipolar one, and there's bipolar two. Bipolar one is the one that gets dramatized on TV, like Homeland or some of those other shows where in the morning, someone can be manic and right. even they could be suicidal. I have bipolar two, which is more of the prolonged bipolar disorder. So you can have three months of hypomania where you're not the extreme symptoms. And then you can have three or four months where you're depressed, but not suicidal. So the cycles are longer. It's not up and down like a type one. If you're not medicated and in therapy on both types, your life can lead to chaos okay. in terms of your spending, in terms of your sex life, in terms of your, everything around your life can be chaotic if you're not on meds and in therapy. So I recommend to all people who are just diagnosed, you're not broken. If you take meds, you need them. You're not broken. If you go to therapy, everyone should. So if you're doing those things, it balances out the highs and lows. Now you also have to lead a balanced life. When I was not, when I was in denial of my diagnosis, working 70, 80 hours a week, um, the substance abuse addiction was an extreme behavior that happened as well. That was a negative thing. A couple of years before that, the positive thing was instead of running two, three miles a day, I ran marathons. So again, the extreme behaviors. So those would be kind of the big things. And then the other big thing that I've learned is you need to have a support system, whether that's a spouse, it should be a spouse, a family member your psychiatrist who prescribes the drugs, and then your therapist who you see to work out behavioral things that you're experiencing in your life. And there are a number of factors there in terms of most people think you just get assigned a therapist. You can actually pick your therapist, especially now with things like better help and other type of tools that you can use. You're picking a therapist just as much as the therapist is being assigned to you. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would think that you would really want to be able to choose the right therapist, not just have somebody assigned because everybody's different and everybody practices differently. Well, most people think you go, you look at your insurance and see who's the providers are and you find one that's close by you. The interesting parallel is what I do for my career as a leadership advisor. We do executive coaching, which I will joke with folks sometimes is therapy for work people. Mm -hmm. And when an executive says, I want to work with a coach, they will, we call them chemistry calls. They'll do a 30 minute call with five or six coaches and they'll decide who's the best fit. So I've done it in my personal life in therapy and I would encourage anyone else. You can do chemistry calls with a therapist and decide if you want to talk to them. If you enjoy talking to them, you guys have yeah. a good personality mesh. Most people with mental health don't know about that. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I totally agree because I've done counseling and coaching um, yeah. for myself. And I always want to make sure that there's a connection with yeah. either one yeah. uh, and that, that we have a general alignment in beliefs because That's right. I can get a little rebellious and salty when yeah. people are saying things that I fundamentally don't agree with or don't align sure. with. Sure. So it's not going to yeah. be helpful. 
yeah, I saw in my own life, I went to a therapist who was an atheist and I'm a Christian. The last couple of years, I've gone to a Christian counselor that is more aligned with my values. Mm-hmm. And so we can talk about things in those sessions that I could never talk about with an atheist. Right, right. Absolutely. And not that either one is right or wrong. It's good or bad. No, it's yeah. good or bad. But you, whatever your values are, you want to be around people that align with them, especially if they're going to be giving you counsel and guidance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious too, because I saw um, on Instagram today, you posted the word humility. Can you, yeah. yeah, Can you share a little bit about the post and then why that's important to you right now? Yeah. So a lot of the work that we're doing now, most of the work that I do is either with CEOs or C-suite executives. And a general theme I've seen from over the last decade is most people have an ego. I think men have larger egos than women. Mm -hmm. There's more pride and arrogance in senior level men. And so what I have found in my coaching work, there is always a sizing up pure, like period when two men get on a Zoom or get in the room together. And so to, to be a good executive coach or leadership advisor, you have to get past that. There has to be a way to get through that. And so I'll always look for ways to find similarities or common ground with someone, even when they have their ego puffed up. And so from that and just the work that I do, I started thinking about my journey or journeys of people in my family. And I think for most men, you're not humble until you get humbled. And so in my own life, the diagnosis of bipolar, I lost my job, I got divorced. A lot of things happened to me. Everyone always says you hit rock bottom. And so for me, for someone who at the time was 25, making six figures plus in New York City, I thought the world revolved around me. And when that happened, I hit rock bottom. Uh, Just in terms of humility, before I went to rehab, I would never thought that I'd be sitting with a heroin addict and have something that I could learn from them. I was a PhD. They're not going to teach me anything. And I learned probably more things in rehab than I did for my graduate courses seven, eight years earlier. That's amazing. Yeah. And so I try to share with people that it's okay to be humble. It's, you should be humble. There, Everything can be gone in an instant. You can get in a car accident tomorrow. Something can happen. So what time you do have is precious and you're no better or no worse than someone else. It goes into diversity too, just because you're white or black or Hispanic or Asian. No one is better or worse. I think all of us, especially in 2022, we want to feel that we can bring our authenticity to our jobs. And authenticity is just not race, gender, sexual orientation. It's what makes Emmy unique, your personality, your background. Like My shoes make me unique. It's an authentic factor about me. And there's a story behind it. And I think if people are able to embrace their authenticity, which is tied to humility, I think if you're humble, you can be more of yourself. You can let your guard down. You can be vulnerable. You know, we're, we're seeing now with our clients that the leaders who build more inclusive cultures create environments where their people can be authentic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I really, I'm so excited that because I've had so many um, guests on recently who are talking about being more authentic in different ways. Yeah. in their businesses and being more human centric in yeah. how we treat people. Yeah. And I think adding in the humility piece is yep. one more step. Yeah. I am curious. So why does it seem to take us to hit rock bottom for us to really make significant change? Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I think most people have to have a reason for change. I mean, we, we believe as a firm that does leadership advisory services that everyone can change, but they have to have a reason to. And so just in my experiences, the folks who had, and rock bottom can be different things for different people. It could be of someone course. who gets fired from a job. They don't get a promotion. It didn't have to be as severe as my case was, but I'm very stubborn. And that's the way I had to learn my <laughs> lesson. Uh, so, me both. But, uh, yeah. So, but I, I think 
The other piece I think is tied to it is self-awareness. So in my new book, Relational Intelligence, I talk about these five essential skills that enable people to build successful long-term relationships. And the key theme around all five skills is, do you have self-awareness? Do you know how your emotions are impacting you? Do you know how to process and think about trust? Are you authentic with yourself? Do you know how to make eye contact? And are there things you know about yourself that a lot of times we're not taught these things in school? We're taught how to do math. We're taught how to do science. What if kids could start learning how to engage with other people and learn about empathy? That's a more important thing now. So I think there are things we're never taught that we pick up along the way. And for people who have more self-awareness, so they have a greater insight into how to read other people, I see that humility and other factors around the ability to connect with folks Mm -hmm. happens a little easier than for the folks who maybe haven't been exposed to different cultures or different ethnicities. For me as a child, I was exposed to Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. And my parents got divorced. I regularly spent time at a mosque or at a church. So I got to see that faith is whatever you make of it, and there's no better or worse. And as an adult now, I have my own beliefs, but team members in my firm have different beliefs. And we can sit in a room and appreciate how those beliefs impact how we show up as leadership advisors and as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, my thought process is that when you start looking at and appreciating what's different about other people, the learning experience is so much greater for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's actually funny you say that. We were working with a client yesterday. I'm a senior executive. We were giving her feedback based on uh, some data that we had. And some of the feedback from her people were, you do diversity and equity inclusion. Like It's important to you to get certain bodies and seats. But when you bring us together, you usually try to define what's common about all of us rather than let us bring our and discuss our unique individual authentic selves. And so the team valued that she at least talks about diversity, which most companies will talk about it. It's a check the box. But the next level of that is, can you let the people who are different now on your team, can they share what those differences are, feel comfortable about doing it and feel like it will contribute to what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. And for somebody who's who's like just now, or maybe they've been thinking about it, what are some ways that they might be able to build more diversity with their current employees? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it goes back to the kind of focus on my book. So there are five skills that you need to build successful relationships with other people, irregardless uh-huh. of the backgrounds or experiences. So if you really want to build authentic team cultures or inclusive cultures, you first need to do the first skill, which is establishing rapport. Mm -hmm. So you really have to find time to connect with your people, the energy that you bring to conversations, things like body language, eye contact, finding common ground. Leaders who build great inclusive teams are intentional about taking time to learn about their people. And so that's a really important thing. The second skill is what we call understanding others. And so this is about being a good active listener. It's about showing empathy towards people. It's about being curious and inquisitive. I was talking to a client this morning And he didn't understand how um, he couldn't connect with people because he was sharing his point of view and his perspective. And I stopped him and said, have you ever asked your people about their personal journeys? And his response was, no, I'm trying to communicate my vision. And I said, they will understand your vision better if Mm -hmm. you take time to understand their stories first. So I think those two skills, establishing rapport, understanding others, if you do those things, you get an understanding of who is on your team not just what they look like or the color of their skin. And then you can really drive and create inclusive cultures. Absolutely. I think just listening actively 
which most people don't do. No, is, <laughs> most people like to talk. No, yeah, yeah, or they're like heads in six other places and not with the person yeah. that they're actually talking to. You're hearing something, but you're not actually processing what they're saying. Yeah. Like that makes such a big difference in any relationship because people feel heard. Even if you don't say anything, yes. the, the energy of that is totally different than uh, mm. somebody who's not listening actively. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's talk about the book, Relational Intelligence. Yeah. What was the catalyst for you picking this back up and, yeah. and finishing it now? Yeah. Um, so like we talked about, as I was going through this personal kind of journey in my 20s, I was in the middle of getting a PhD. And so my journey around relational intelligence started a decade before that in 1995. I picked up Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, Why It Matters More Than IQ. And I was fascinated by this idea that there are other factors beyond IQ that can contribute to how successful we are in business and life. Mm-hmm. And so for 10 years, I picked apart EQ. I looked at what it was, what it wasn't. I looked at things like narcissism and Machiavellianism and how people can use emotions to manipulate people. As I started working on my dissertation, I said, okay, if emotional intelligence can be used for good or bad purposes, is there a separate skill set that leaders can use to inspire their people? And so I did my dissertation on relational intelligence. I didn't call it that at the time. I called it some weird psychobabble term, but the five (laughs) skills that everything was there. If I told you that term now, you would look at me like deer in headlights. But if someone wants to Google my name, it's you can find the dissertation. It's online. And then I put it on a shelf. But I started practicing those skills in my relationships with my colleagues, mm-hmm. in my personal life, dating and with family, and in my relationships with all my clients. And I started seeing tremendous impact in terms of the relationship I was building with the firm that I worked for. I saw tremendous impact in terms of the clients I was working with. I was developing business and building deals. Give a perfect example. I was asked to do a $20,000 coaching engagement and I built a relationship with every person on that team. And 18 months later, the account was worth $750,000. So again, just that growth. And I was a, that was my second year in the firm. I was a kid. Most of my colleagues were 20, 30 years older than me. And if you said, what did you do? 26 year old kid. All I did was take time intentionally and authentically to learn about those leaders. Mm-hmm. So I started practicing these skills and refining these skills and in my dating life and meeting women and making friends. This skill that we're talking about, relational intelligence, does not just apply professionally. It applies personally. So in the book, it's split into two sections. The first section, I talk about the five skills. So there's a chapter on each. And then the second section of the book is really the applications of relational intelligence. So your family relationships your friendships, your business relationships, and then even romantic relationships and marriage. Awesome. So that was happening. And then in 2020, I wrote my first book and it triggered the idea that this whole thing around relationships and empathy, there's something there and pulled out my dissertation. I was like, wow, I could use this again. I have to call it something different. Right. Um, but when I thought about it, these are, you're building relationships and connections with people. And so that's how I came up with the term relational intelligence and uh, started writing the book last January. So it's been an 18-month journey. What I've learned writing my second book is writing the book is half the puzzle. Marketing the book and getting the message out is the more important part of the puzzle. And so what's really, yeah, it's 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 been fascinating. The last six or seven months, we've written like 30 different articles on relational intelligence. And if you name the topic, I can tell you, we just wrote one on relational intelligence and introverts. Fascinating ideas that came up from the research that we've done. Most introverts have been told since they were a young age that it's a weakness or it's a flaw. And what our research shows is that relationally intelligent introverts can actually be more impactful and build deeper relationships mm-hmm. than the extroverts who like to be the center of attention. 
Yeah. And I mean, we just touched on this briefly before I hit record where I wrote an article a few weeks ago for LinkedIn saying similarly that introverts can really be amazing salespeople. Um, The the general myth is that you you have to be an extra extrovert to be great in sales. It's so not true. (laughs) Well, our research says there are three things that so you're saying introverts can be better sales folks. I'll give you the three yeah. reasons our research says why. One, introverts are highly self-aware, they're observant, and most importantly, they're excellent listeners. So in yeah. the sales process, you got to listen to your customers. Two, relationally intelligent introverts are more curious and inquisitive than extroverts. An introvert is talking to you. They're processing what you're saying. If an extrovert is talking to you, they're thinking about what they're going to say, not listening to what you're saying. And then three, relationally intelligent introverts are highly skilled at putting themselves in other people's shoes. So mm-hmm. they have greater degrees of empathy than extroverts do. So just those yeah. three things in terms of building deep relationships, introverts are light years ahead of extroverts. Yeah, absolutely. And it's those are essentially the same points I was making in my article too. So you now have data to back it up. <laughs> yes. yes. And it's been really interesting to see that and some of my clients who are introverts as we're working together, become more comfortable in using their skills to further their ability to to make great sales because it's not about being that pushy, slimy salesperson, hard salesperson. It's really about serving and how do I build this relationship in an intelligent way that that serves people for the greater good for the longer period of time. Yeah, that's so well said. And we're doing, we have a program now we call the Relational Intelligence Experience, which is a two-day immersive. We teach leaders these skills and then we put them into exercise and activities where they can practice them. And we did one last week. And one of the questions was, this sounds like a lot of sales training where you're teaching people skills to get things out of other people. And I stopped the person right where they said, and I said, no, that's not this at all. What we are doing here are teaching how to build authentic and genuine relationships. We're in the nature of business. Everyone is, we're all looking to make money but you will have a more successful business if you care about people and do it authentically. None of these skills are gimmicky. We're trying to do some. These skills are ways to build deep connections with people. And if you're not, people can tell very quickly if you're trying to sell them something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Before I forget, let's share with everybody where they can get your book. Yeah, absolutely. So you can pick up the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple. It'll be available Monday on all retailers. Yeah. You can also get the Audible book. That'll be out in about six to eight weeks. And then you can follow us on social media for different posts that we're doing. As I mentioned, the article on introverts will be coming out in two weeks. We just did an article that was released this week on the generational differences. So baby boomers and millennials mm-hmm. and how relational intelligence is a skill that can unite all generations based on things around significance and fulfillment that everyone wants, whether you're 25 or 65. Yeah, absolutely. And from a work perspective, how can people build their relational intelligence with their yeah. team? Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of different things. I mean, obviously get the book and read about, learn about the skills. Um, I think that's the the basic part. What most people read the book, they ask is how can I assess my skills right now? We've developed what we call a relational intelligence test. So I can tell you, Emmy, once you take the test, where you stand on each of the five skills. And then you have to go through and do some training. We call it our relational intelligence experience, but learning how to build empathy, you have to practice it. So It's not just one thing to learn the skills. It's nice to read a book. You have to start practicing the skills and putting them into play. And so for a lot of our clients, you know, we've encouraged them come back into the offices 
where you can sit in the room and actually practice making eye contact. You and I can't do that right now, even though we're both listening to each other. And so there are things like that, very simple things, active listening. You can work on those type of things, getting a coach to help you work on your self-awareness. So a lot of these things are not rocket science, but you have to practice them to really develop them. For somebody who's like, I don't even know if I'm listening actively or not. How do you identify that or acknowledge that you? this is the space that active listening um, happens in? Yeah. For me, it's something I do all the time. So I'm not even sure I know how to describe it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of different things. There's the nature versus nurture thing. So personality-wise, you would say you're an introvert, correct? I'm a little bit of both, but I have coached for so long that like that's been my greatest gift is being able to really hear people and hear what they're not saying. Okay. So that's the skill that introverts have. I'm an extreme end of the scale extrovert. And so I've been given feedback that I talk more than I listen. I interrupt people. So you should get a baseline of what your personality is. And you can take the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram just to get a sense of how you're wired. And then what we do in our work is we get feedback from others. So we have a process called the 360, where if Emmy is in a company, she can have us do a process where we'll interview her peers, we'll interview her manager, and we'll interview the people that report to her. And we'll come back to you and say, you have your perspective, you have your personality test that you took. Here's the perception of how other people actually see you. So you'll get data that will say, well, Emmy is an active listener, or in these settings with her peers, she isn't. So getting that feedback at some point in your career is really important. Okay. So just starting to ask people and get the feedback and then make yeah, it. Oh, I mean, a husband and wife, you can ask your, I mean, again, you know, how am I showing up as a spouse or how am I showing up right. as a sibling? So yeah, absolutely. Okay. Which reminds me of, I used to do check-ins with my kids, particularly as they were teenagers. And yeah. I always encouraged them to give me feedback on my parenting style and yeah. abilities. Yeah. Um, so one of the Where questions. Where did you learn that? Where did you learn that? Because most parents don't do that. <laughs> I just started doing it. I my parenting style in general as a single mom with very little support yeah. was very different. Like I we created the three of us this really fluid team yeah. that even now as they're grown up and doing their own thing and living their own lives when we come back together we move yeah. as a single unit in yeah. in how we plan things, orchestrate, go to dinner, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. I grew up with a single mother too, three of us, and same yeah. type of thing. And and I even now when I when I went to rehab, had addiction, I went to my mother first because of the trust we built when I was a teenager that yeah. I knew she wouldn't judge me and I knew that she would help me. And similar, it sounds exactly how you created this bond with your children. I experienced mm-hmm. that with my mother as well. Yeah, yeah. And the question I would ask them is, on a scale of one to ten, where would you rate me as a parent? And what would it take or what do I have to do better or improve to get to a 10? Wow. Wow. Yeah. All the leaders that I work with could fire me if they just asked that question to other people. <laughs> 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 they could save themselves a lot of money if they just asked that question once in a while. Well, I mean, you have to be able to be open to hearing the bad stuff, right? Like, yeah. And yeah. I wanted to make sure that both of my kids had a voice and that I heard them and that then I could take some of that information and make changes yeah. in in yeah. how I was doing things to help them grow. And yeah. they were they're both very different people. Yeah. So I have to yeah. use very different strategies or yeah. <laughs> ways to guide them to yeah. 
You sound them exactly help. like my mother. My mother has a, she can work, she can talk to Adam in a certain way. And she can talk to my brother in a certain way from our values to how we look to how we carry ourselves. So my mom is very flexible. I learned very, at a very young age, you need to be agile and flexible when you're not with people because everyone is different. You cannot have a one size fits all approach. Yeah, absolutely. So the first time I started hearing in you know, corporate that like you want to change how you speak to different people and kind of meet them. I'm like, well, doesn't everybody just do that? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, not. I, I, run a, I run a business for 20 years that people do not. And I'll give you a great example. Um, there's a gentleman that I'm coaching right now from a company and he has spent most of his career at one company. And most okay. of that time he has managed and coached millennials or Gen Z. Right. He just got promoted into a role where he's coaching people his age or older. And he has a playbook for how he treats his direct reports and it's not resonating with his direct reports or his age. And I'll give you the, so he gives a plaque out to everyone when they join his team that says the buck stops here. And he gave the plaque to these people who are older than him. And they said, no shit, we learned that 20 years ago. And so the things that he's doing with this team, he's not reading the cues. He's not understanding. He's not adapting to the needs of his people. And so that challenge happens all the time with the clients we work with. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely want to think about who you're working with and what their needs are and what their experiences are, because that's going to impact how they relate to you too. Absolutely. And that goes back to why relational intelligence is so important. If you establish rapport with someone, if you take time to learn their stories, if you develop trust with them, they will buy into your vision. If you, I call it in our work, we call it sewing into the relationship. If I'm intentionally generous and I sew into the relationship with Amy, because I genuinely and authentically want to get to know her. She'll feel the same way. Our bond will tighten and strengthen. And then we can collectively go after any goals we need to for our business. And we'll be able to get through good and bad seasons because there's a trust there that we're in the boat together. Yeah, absolutely. I really I mean, appreciate you saying that too. It resonates with me completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I hope everybody finds that that is a really important thing to start implementing. And Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's why like this... this this book, Relational Intelligence, is not just a book I'm trying to sell. It's the way that I live my life. It's the way I've built a firm. Every leader that I've coached or work with, when I've seen them apply this, it dramatically changes the way they build their teams and work. So this is more of a cause than me for the business world. It's not just a book that we're coming out with. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to even I mean, encourage everybody to get your book, not only because it's amazing and, and so helpful, but we're in this huge shift in how we interact as humans in business. And it, your book is a perfect roadmap to really start making that shift in your workplace. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you were to sum it up in the shortest way possible, I am giving people a playbook of how to be intentional and authentic in building relationships in the workplace. Yeah. And I'll add to that. If we all were doing that, the world would look like a completely different place. 1000% I agree. But I've run into, even in our trainings, and this is the fundamental thing that I'm trying to get people to shift their minds. People will say, we're in the business of making money and it has to be results oriented. And I'm trying to get people to have a lens system shift. That is table stakes. That's price of admission. Every company, every business wants to make money. If you want to do it and keep your people engaged and you want them to be committed you want them to enjoy what they're doing, you have to make them a priority as well. You have to build relationships with it and you have to make them feel comfortable that they can be their authentic selves in the work that they do. So you can still, and our research has shown, if you practice these five skills, you can still get your results. 
you can still get financial profitability and you can do it faster and more efficiently because your people know they matter. Yeah. I think taking people for granted and burnout, the yeah. days of that are fingers crossed over or slowly coming to an end. Yeah. But the new high performance, new productivity is empathy and intentionality. Yeah. Yeah, in 10 years, most of the workforce, 55 to 60% of the workforce are going to be Gen Z and millennials. And they fundamentally have different values and beliefs than baby boomers and Gen Xers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like that <laughs> as a Gen Xer. I'm super excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Adam, this has been phenomenal. I've loved having you on today. Yeah, this has been such a pleasure. And thank you for having me. And hopefully, some of this stuff will help your audience. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, the men- just the mental health aspect. I think it's important to know who have mental health uh, challenges or disorders that it's okay. And that, um, you know, I've run successful. Now, again, I had to have self-awareness and I had to hit my rock bottom. So I had to learn, but had a doctor at 24, had some bedside manner and showed empathy. My journey could have been different, but my mental health is kind of one of my greatest assets right now. There's an energy that I have in the mornings. I've written two books because I write them in the mornings. I know how to manage it and use it to my advantage. And I think every person, if they have the time and the self-awareness and get the help, they could do the same. Yeah. And I i don't know what the, the absolute research is on this, but I've had, I've heard several conversations on other other podcasts where there's been discussion about entrepreneurs falling in some range of um, kind of low level, uh, either depression or, or even bipolar and learning to use those differences, just what you said to your advantage, but that comes with doing the work to the therapist with a coach um, to really understand. Yeah. I'll give you a perfect example. Kanye West has bipolar Uh and he's brilliant in his space, but he's not on meds. He doesn't go to therapy or at least what the stories have said. And so his life is more chaotic because he doesn't have it under control, but he makes amazing music. He's very creative and bipolar people are very creative. They're very innovative when they're manic. But again, when you're manic, is there's going to be a crash and you could be suicidal thoughts that if a manic episode happens, a depressive episode happening. So being on meds, being in therapy balances that out. But tons of musicians, artists, people who are creative, a lot of times they tend to be bipolar. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me too. Just seeing some of the behavior, some of the artists that I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So awesome. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being here and sharing all of your wisdom. Um, I can hardly wait to get my copy of your book, yeah, Intelligence. Awesome. And um, share with everybody where they can connect with you too. Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Adam Bandelli. You can find our website, Bandelli and Associates, the word and.com. And then if you want to follow us on Instagram, it's official underscore Bandelli Associates. And you can find us there as well. All right. Well, thank you. And everybody who's listening, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am so grateful for each and every episode that you tune in and listen to. And I hope that you get a ton of value that you can implement starting today. I do have just a quick favor. If you wouldn't mind hopping on to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and review, it would help us tremendously so that the Tribe of Leaders podcast can be found more easily and help inspire other entrepreneurial leaders.